You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is Served. Hello and welcome to Justice is Served, where we bring you our analysis on trending legal news. I'm Chelsea Galicia, and today we're covering former subway guy Jared Fogel's admission to possessing child pornography and having sex with minors. We'll discuss the sentencing he's facing and whether his plea deal is fair. And of course, we have got to talk about the Ashley Madison hack and release of personal information. Some of um, its users are now suing. We'll talk about the likelihood of their success. And we'll share um, our thoughts about one particular user, Josh Duggar, who we uh, talked about uh, in late May about him uh, admitting to molesting uh, young girls, including his own sisters. And uh, we're also going to talk about Terrence Howard's epic win over his ex-wife uh, regarding her attempts to get a piece of his empire money. And then we're going to look at whether the tide is turning on how the police engage with communities after a new report comes out from a police group and uh, training across the country for police departments is underway in de-escalating efforts. We'll talk about whether we think that is enough and what, what we think uh, should happen. We'd like to hear from uh, you about that as well. And finally, we're going to sound off on the advice that NFL rookies received last year at the Rookie Symposium about having a fall guy for their legal troubles. I, we have so much to cover today, and I'm happy to do it with a guest host. Uh, we have Portia Daniels here. Welcome. Portia is a recent law school graduate who just sat for the California bar exam last month. And I love talking to and, and getting insights from people who are knowledgeable of the law, but who haven't been lawyers for all that long. Because as much as we talked about um, hardened criminals, I also think there is such a phenomenon as hardened lawyers. And so I'm excited for your fresh perspective. Uh, Portia currently works with the NBC Universal on the business affairs team and was previously a legal intern for the Ultimate Fighting Championship in Las Vegas. She has some uh, experience abroad, too, having studied the Chinese legal system while living in Beijing for summer a few years ago. I'm looking forward to, to her perspective on today's story. Thank you so much, Portia, for being here today. Thank you, Chelsea. I'm happy to be here. All right, great. And should we dive into the first story? Yes, let's get it. Okay, so our case of the week is Jared Fogel. Uh, he was a college student back in 2000 when he lost 245 pounds. I didn't even know he had lost that wow. much weight. Eating Subway sandwiches twice a day, and he's become the center of their uh, marketing campaign ever since. That was in 2000. And now, recently, he, at age 37, has admitted to having sex with at least two underage girls and to obtaining uh, child pornography of 12 children as young as six years old. He is scheduled to formally plead guilty in an Indianapolis federal courtroom uh, on November 19th and has worked out a deal where he... Uh, faces about five to 12 and a half years in prison. 
Uh, he has possessed what law enforcement has called a significant amount of child porn and uh, used the interstate highway to have sex with minors. And the reason why that's a big deal is because when you use interstate highway, uh, then that's how the federal uh, government can can have jurisdiction over that. He solicited sexual acts from at least uh, 14 minors. He is paying uh, $100,000 in restitution to each of those 14 minors. So $1.4 million of that subway money is is going mm-hmm. to the victims. Um, but the, the question is whether... Facing a sentence of five to 12 and a half years is really all that fair in light of the fact that just uh, account for distribution and receipt of child pornography carries a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. So five years for everything to me, at least, at least looks insufficient. Um, although there is a possibility of up to 20 years. So the, uh, the the count involving travel for purposes of unlawful sexual activity with minors carries a maximum of 30 years with a mandatory with no mandatory minimum so it 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 looks like if he's really going to face 5 to 12 years he's catching a big break. Yeah. What do you think? You think yeah. it's fair? You think five, maybe 12 more? What do you think? I think this is an extremely sad case. I definitely don't think between five and 12 and a half years for something of this gross magnitude is fair at all. Because um, most of the time in cases like this, you see people get 10, 10 years for one count of child molestation or something like that. So for him to only be facing five to 12 and a half years, I guess he should think his legal team because... I'm surprised when I was reading the articles, I was like, wow. I, I too. I, I, I was shocked too. And this must speak to the fact that he was cooperative with prosecutors. I think also it has to do with the fact that, um, the, the head of his foundation, um, was the real target mm-hmm. of the original investigation. Um, and Russell Taylor, um, was the head of, of, of his, um, Foundation and who was the original target of the FBI's investigation. And perhaps uh, Jared is agreeing to provide testimony against uh, Russell Taylor in exchange for this, this plea deal. Uh, Russell Taylor is a, perhaps a bigger fish since he mm-hmm. is suspected of being involved in the actual production and distribution. So possession of child pornography as bad as that is, is sort of the lowest charge on the Mm -hmm. child pornography totem pole, if there is such a thing, with, of course, distribution and production being the worst crimes. Uh, Perhaps that money, that restitution that he's uh, agreeing to pay um, to victims has also helped him out. Um, And he's come out through his legal team to acknowledge he's got a medical condition that he's going to seek treatment for. Although, (laughs) you're laughing. Why do you laugh? Yeah, because I just think the fact that, yeah, he possessed it, but at the same time, he actually committed sexual acts with these minors, which to me is like the real issue, like a serious offense. And that's like the most, these kids and everyone affected are going to have to live with this for a lifetime. And the way that they've been affected by these acts, you can never imagine. So I just think 
you got to be careful what message you're sending with this kind of stuff. So yeah. I don't really know what absolutely. message they may be sending with this type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Chi- uh, you know, sex-related criminal behavior has high recidivism rate, which means mm-hmm. that a high degree uh, or high likelihood of repeat Re- offense. Yeah. Um and it's it's known that many of these people suffer from psychological dysfunctions who commit the crimes as well yeah. as the victims who uh, are on the receiving end. And, and these are difficult to treat. And it, it's it's kind of makes me roll my eyeballs because, yeah. oh, now you want to admit yeah. that you've got a medical condition? I saw that law enforcement said that he had been doing this for five years. But when I look back, I saw that there were signs of this and complaints about this from back to 2007. Um, and that's when a, a, a journalist who, for some reason, Jared trusted to express his enjoyment of watching young people. He actually asked a journalist if she would put cameras in the bedrooms of her own children so that he could watch. He shared with her that he enjoyed sex with minors. And so she's the one that started cooperating with the FBI to to get evidence against him. But there was also what I saw a, a woman with a similar story who said she posted her concerns on Subway's online forum and never heard back. So the fact that he's had this medical condition and that he allowed the behavior to go on for so many years and is only now getting help now that he's been caught is really disheartening. He's going to need many years of intense therapy as will the victims. Uh, I'm not even sure if a hundred thousand dollars will quite yeah. Do it for each of the victims. And there, there may be more victims. The, the 14 victims are just the ones that are most certainly, um, known, but yeah. there may be others. And, and with given this length of time, I, I would suspect that there probably are more. Uh, I don't know. We'll yeah. find out in, uh, in November. Now it's interesting that, um, the deal is, that prosecutors will ask for no more than 12 and a half years. Defense will uh, ask for nothing less than five. But the judge has discretion in this case to override the deal and could give more. Um, yeah. I, are, are you like me hoping that he will yeah, give more? Yeah, I really do. Because that just came to mind. I remember a couple of years back um, where in my hometown, I remember a school administrator dating the a student at the time and he was like 15 or 16 and she got 20 years. Wow. Where yeah. was this? This was in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and it, it also, and really, when you think about things like that, you're just like, wow. yeah, one story. Yeah. 20. Yeah. And, uh, and, I know this is a different crime, but we have talked uh, here on this show about um, drug crimes and recently about President Obama commuting the sentences of 46 people who are given life sentences for drug-related crimes. Mm -hmm. And these people, in my mind, committed much less egregious, violent, dangerous criminal behavior and were are in there for life. There are still many thousands of people. I mean, yeah. when when the number was 46 people commuted, I was like, what, did the president have one attorney working part-time <laughs> while high to review these applications? Um, because I, I, I would imagine that so many more people yeah. would be safer on the the streets than somebody who engages with uh, in sex with minors 
Yeah, I think it cross the straight lines to do it. Yeah. All right. So we will see in November. We'll certainly follow up uh, with what the, the judge decides. Please let us know your thoughts, uh, whether you think five is enough, 12 and a half, more. Please let us know. And so we're going to um, cover our football story later on in the show. But for now, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about football, mm-hmm. fantasy football to be exact. And I personally never played, but I just might start now that I know what DraftKings.com is up to. Uh, last football season, they crowned more millionaires than any other one-week fantasy sports site anywhere. Makes looking makes lawyering look like uh, a hobby if you can actually make that much money on fantasy sports. I had no idea. Uh, so this season, the prizes are going to be even bigger. You could start the season by winning $2 million in week one alone. It's the biggest fantasy football contest ever. There are $10 million in prizes up for grabs, including $2 million for first place and $1 million for second place. I don't usually say this, but I would take second place. <laughs> And since this is just one week fantasy football, there's no season long commitment. It's fantasy football on demand. Play where you want, when you want, with the players you want. You just pick your players, pile up the points, and maybe with enough skill and luck, uh, pick up your big cash. And that's it. This isn't fantasy as usual. Welcome to the big time. So seeing as how regular season is going to kick off soon, you'll need to hurry to draftkings.com and use promo code Black, B-L-A-C-K, to play free for a shot at the $2 million top prize in the Week 1 Millionaire's Maker. So enter Black for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's Draft, D-R-A-F-T, Kings.com. Wow, right? Right. Okay, so another wow story. Uh, Ashley Madison. And the hackers who threatened to release the information of 37 million users delivered on their threat to to do so when the parent company refused to take the site down. They apparently have moral objections to the site. So police in Canada are working with the FBI and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and law enforcement to crack the case of who these hackers are. Canadian authorities are involved because the dating website... uh, Aimed at people seeking extramarital affairs was created by a Toronto-based company called Avid Life Media. For its part, Avid Life Media is offering a $380,000 reward for information about who the hackers are. That's equal to $500,000 Canadian dollars. And at the same time, lawsuits are being filed against the company in the U.S. and Canada. There are, um, as of my last search, eight users across the U.S. who are suing. They're all seeking uh, class action status so that they can represent the nearly 40 million registered users. The lawsuits are for breach of contract, privacy violations, and negligence because the site failed to take reasonable steps to protect the security of its users, like encrypting the data. Some of the users had actually paid a fee of $19 to have their profiles deleted and made untraceable. Ooh, sucks for them. There is a class action suit filed by a John Doe user in California that also uh, seeks um, infliction of emotional distress compensation. Mm-hmm. Last week, a uh, upwards of $500 million lawsuit was filed in Canada, which also seeks class action status. So 
the question is, <laughs> how successful do you think these users are uh, that want to sue the company? Well, it seems like for the negligence claim, it seems like they would have a pretty good legal leg to stand on as far as going back to the textbook definitions for negligence. You're looking at the duty. So thinking that Ashley Madison as the site and the host of all of their personal information has some type of duty to protect that information by encrypting, like you said, and doing, taking certain measures or security measures to make sure that that personal information is even if it is hacked, it wouldn't show specific names, maybe their logs in code form or different things like that. And the fact that that information is now out, I mean, breach is kind of breach the whole is, thing. <laughs> I mean, there. And, and this is, in my mind, different from like the target hacking where, you know, uh, hackers obtain credit card information because target they're the center of their marketing isn't come shop at target your information is safe with us the fact that you, you <laughs> shop here yeah. is secret and we promise yeah. to not let anybody exactly. know this and so it, it when your marketing is based on anonymity exactly. protection secrets yeah. privacy the duty is elevated i think in yes. my mind yeah i definitely agree with that so i think that there are viable claims here i do think that the the class action um status may be broken down into two different users one for the general users who mm-hmm. did pay money uh and who believed that their information would be kept private and not released and another for the people who actually paid the money to have their profiles deleted um, because they were paying for a service to be untraceable and the company failed to deliver on that. So not only should they get their $19 back, but perhaps more. Although class action cases are notorious for making lawyers rich, well, yeah. not being so great for the, yeah. for the, the users themselves. Um, but we will be hearing more about this because I don't believe these claims are frivolous. I think uh, some, if not all of these, um, these cases will be um, heard. I mean, I, I, I think uh, Ashley Madison, if they have any money left, will try <laughs> and um, settle these claims. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that they're in for some major financial yeah. pain in the future. And I, I also wanted um, to cover the fact that some of these users are U.S. government workers with jobs in the White House, Congress, and just Justice Department, and military. So putting this kind of information out there is extra dangerous, and they had to have known that these uh, information, this information was highly sensitive. Uh, I'm not sure if, if people in... in government will have their own class probably not because yeah. it's not like Ashley Madison com- marketed just to yeah. them but uh this the 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 names of the users being released has shed some light on on some interesting or maybe not so interesting <laughs> shocking users one of which is Josh Duggar who was one of the first to be outed as an Ashley Madison User And this is interesting because we talked about Josh in May after he uh, acknowledged uh, to uh, inappropriately touching young girls when he was 14, 15 years old, including his sisters. And 
the, the family was saying, leave us alone. This is old news. We have healed from this. Josh was punished. Mm-hmm. He has turned his you know, life around. Yeah. Even the governor, Mike Huckabee, wrote, the fact that he confessed his sins, this is what Mike Huckabee said back in May, the fact that he confessed his sins to those he harmed, sought help, and has gone forward to live a responsible and circumspect life as an adult is a testament to his family's authenticity and humility. Those are some (laughs) words to eat now that Josh himself calls himself the biggest hypocrite ever. He issued a statement in the wake of reports that his name was one of the millions uh, who use the site saying, I have been the biggest hypocrite ever while espousing faith and family values. I have secretly over the last several years been viewing pornography on the internet and this became a secret addiction and I became unfaithful to my wife. I am so ashamed of the double life that I have been living and I'm grieved for the hurt, pain, and disgrace my sin has caused my wife and family and most of all Jesus and all those who profess faith in him. He continued that the last few years while publicly stating I was fighting against immorality in our country I was hiding my own personal failings. I humbly ask for your forgiveness Please pray for my precious wife, Anna, and our family during this time. Now, at the time that we covered the story, we talked about how statute of limitations had run. Nobody had, the the police could not press charges, even though a police officer knew about this at the time that it it had gone on. So I'm wondering now, is this justice is served in the form of karma? (laughs) I think this is one of those be careful who you are always pointing your fingers at. Like, don't be so quick to point your fingers at other people when you have your own issues that you are. That is exactly (laughs) right. Going through on your own. And and it's exactly what I said back in May when Sarah asked me, do you really think that the family and Josh has come out of this healed and recovered? Or is this just a family secret? Hush, hush, be quiet, move on. And I said, given how this family and Josh Duggar working with a, um, with the Family Research Council to, to uh, fight against gay marriage and to talk about how that, um, is, is against the, the sanctity of marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people point the finger outward, yeah. you're wrong, you're immoral, you're damaging marriage, yeah. uh, it's often hiding their own as he said it, failings, trying to detract attention from their own behavior and put it on other people. It is a common behavior that you see from people who are trying to hide what they are up to, pointing attention outward. And, and, and this is a little a slightly gratuitous, well, very gratuitous. I told you a moment for me because <laughs> it turns out I was right about that. Love when that happens. Um, so it, it is fascinating how this whole, yeah. these two stories came together to, to, to create this, this insight of, yeah, you got to really watch out when people are up on their soapbox yeah. telling you, um, how to behave, uh, because it wasn't, he wasn't trying to tell people how to behave for their own happiness. Mm-hmm. It was telling people how to behave because he thought he was the moral teacher. I mean, 
it, it yeah. there's a way to uh, you know espouse what you believe and try and be helpful yes. to people and then there's a way to just be judgmental exactly. and hate uh, and speaking out of hate towards yeah. people and you could definitely feel that this was more of the the latter, trying to tell people how to live um, just because of what he believed is right and wrong, yeah. not because that that's what's good for the people he was trying to uh, espouse this to. So fascinating turn of events. Yeah, very interesting. All right. Okay, so now we're going to move on to Terrence Howard's big win in court this week. So Michelle Gent is wife number two, who has been trying to get an increase in spousal support payments ever since Terrence hit it big on Empire and is reportedly making more than $100,000 an episode. She wanted a piece of the Empire pie. But Terrence is saying, not only do you not get any part of this empire pie, I want to toss out the arrangement where I was paying you $5,800 a month in the first place. Now, this couple was only married for a year, and he's been paying $5,800 a month for the last three years in accordance with a deal that they struck back in 2012. So uh, Terrence Howard went on the offense and claimed that Michelle threatened to release embarrassing and potentially career-ending information or lies about him, a video of him dancing naked in the bathroom. I don't know how that would be career-ending, probably just embarrassing, but uh, saying that he had an STD, uh, releasing a sex tape, things of that nature. And a few weeks ago, Terrence cried on the stand when discussing how he felt threatened and pressured into signing the agreement. Although I think it's a fair question to ask whether there was any acting going on there. But the judge apparently bought it and just this week tossed out the spousal support agreement, saying that Terrence signed it under duress due to his ex-wife blackmailing him with threats of releasing naked photos and videos. The judge said the evidence of extortion or duress was unrebutted, or in other words, that Michelle didn't present any evidence to the contrary. However, she was not allowed to testify at this four-day hearing because her attorneys had failed to sign a uh, or, or file a sworn declaration from her before the proceedings began. And this was also interesting. The judge acknowledged that Howard is no innocent angel, saying that there's no question, this is a quote, there's no question in my mind Terrence is a bully. But just because you're a bully doesn't mean you can't be bullied. <laughs> so my question for you, Portia, is do, do, were you surprised that the judge found, A, that he signed it under duress and then tossed out the agreement? Yeah, I was very surprised with that. But at the same time, it's kind of for her, it's kind of like, why didn't I leave well enough alone kind of thing? I know looking back, she's probably kicking herself for that. But at the same time, I think going forward, I, I guess it'll be interesting to see how their new paperwork pans out yes exactly things will end up yeah so the judge has essentially sent them back to the drawing board they've got to come together and and form a a new agreement um it whether he will pay her any more at all remains to be seen uh in fact it's possible that she will have to return some of the money um, although, you know, she recently in July, uh, sued him for assault over an incident that went down in a rental home in Costa Rica in 2013, oh, wow. 
where she claims he beat her and he says it was a mutual combat and he was pepper sprayed during that incident. Uh, she filed the claim one day before the statute of limitations expired. So perhaps, you know, that will be the leg she stands on to say, well, I'm not going to pay you any money, but I'll drop that yeah. suit against you. We shall see. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see how yeah. that goes. All right, and so now and for the tipping the scales portion, we've got two stories today where we want to hear uh, your thoughts. The first of which is um, potential change in the police departments following all of the cases of police shootings or killings of unarmed uh, people, particularly black men. And there's a new report that says many of the controversial police shootings could have been avoided even if they were deemed legally justifiable. Now, the content of that report is probably a shock to uh, very few people. Not wasn't mm-hmm. to me. But the surprise for me was who was behind the report, and it comes from a research and policy group called the Police Executive Research Forum, whose members include commanders from the largest U.S. police departments. So this is now coming from a police group, not a victim's family group, community group, activist group. This is now being acknowledged by those in law enforcement. The report said officers don't receive nearly enough training in de-escalating conflict and that there's a culture that encourages them to resort quickly to physical force. The report says that there's missed opportunities to ratchet down the encounter, to slow things down, and to call in additional resources, according to Chuck Wexler, who is the executive director of the group. Now, the study also found that... Um, uh, Many police um, agencies give officers extensive training on how to shoot, but spend less time on de-escalation tactics, crisis intervention strategies for dealing with mentally ill persons, homeless people, and other challenging situations. Now, Wexler said it may be difficult for many police officers to accept that things need to change dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was standing by what the report found, saying that the Police Executive Research Forum is known uh, for not being afraid to question the conventional thinking um, and, in, and in looking at critical tactics about how to improve police um, engagement with the communities. Now, either because of reports like that or just from seeing how many stories uh, of police killings there have been recently. The LAPD is now retraining officers. They are hearing from their deputy chief, Bill Scott, that we were warriors. It sounds like I said warriors. Warriors is what I meant to say. Now, he said, officers need to think of themselves as guardians watching over communities, not warriors cracking down on them. He said that if if uh, we've got to take somebody to jail, we'll take them to jail. But if we need to be empathetic and human, we've got to do that, too. And it's not just the LAPD. Departments across the country are taking steps to replace the warrior mentality with a different approach that emphasizes patience and protection over suppression and zero tolerance. It would be a huge fundamental shift. In everything from the way police handle their guns to the way they walk down the street and even speak to members of the public. 
Um, the, recently, there was a five-hour lecture in, in Los Angeles uh, covering the ways that police should engage with community to build community trust uh, when they're allowed to curse in public and how that they should avoid walking with swagger. Um, do you think that this kind of training is going to make a difference? Um, make a difference? I'm not sure, but I'm definitely sure it's necessary. I um, feel like that's evidence from all the things that have been going on in the news lately. If you think about it, we go to school an extra three years to become lawyers, and we're mostly dealing with things. If you're working in the criminal system, you're dealing with different actions and different reports from police. And so they are able to impact lives in an instant, whether it's arresting someone that's going to change someone's entire life or doing different things. So I think additional training is definitely necessary for those type of situations. But I also think when you said community involvement is also necessary because most of the time when you have some type of relationship to those in the community and you actually know the people in the community, you actually know what's going on in the community the community is more welcoming of you and you are more welcoming of those in the community as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I understand that there are some officers who are resistant to this. Um, some of them snickering or, um, when looking at a video of police kicking somebody say, Oh, they only stopped because he was, must've gotten tired and things of that nature. So I think that the obstacle that the training has to overcome is selling it to the police officers as something that is good for them, not just good for communities and the public perception of police and public trust, but is actually good for individual police officers Mm -hmm. professionally and personally. And that is a huge barrier to overcome. And I think where the rub lies here is... um, is the things that attract people to become police officers in the first place. And now I don't say this about all police officers. And in fact, this is true of all professions, lawyers, uh, you know, accountants, doctors. Part of it you're, you're drawn to because of the qualities that we associate with those Mm -hmm. professions. So, uh, police are associated with being brave, courageous, and powerful. So people who themselves feel that they are fearful, not courageous, yeah. have a lack of control and are very have feel that they have little power are attracted to this profession so that psychologically they can feel that they now have cur- things like courage, bravery and power due to their association or due to their um being a police officer. And again, people in all different professions do this, but when it comes to police, there are such immediate and dire consequences, mm-hmm. immediately life-threatening consequences yeah. of, of egos that are out of control. Um, and, 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 you know, being disrespected by somebody in the community member sparks their ego to escalate the situation and show who's boss and say, I'm the cop. You're not, you obey me, you listen to me. And, uh, I think that I was on to something when I said earlier that there should be like psychological, I don't know if it's testing or training or something that speaks to yeah. the psyche of, of police officers or, or people who become police officers. And then also they're deserving probably of um, mental help, help, whether it's a therapist or I don't know, I know it sounds kind of cheesy, life coach or something like that, to help them deal with and process the difficult situations that they deal with every day, um, some of the frightening things that they are forced to, to witness. And so I think we've got to train them and also help them. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there is, I, I think this is a good start. 
But I think there is a lot to be done on a very, very deep, like spiritual, emotional, you know, level. Am I sounding woo woo crazy here or you think I'm on (laughs) something? No, I think they have to remember as well as like they're there to protect and serve. Essentially, that's what the police are. And people shouldn't be fearful of getting stopped by the police. Right. We should feel like they're there to help yeah. the community and you make You know, it I just had a friend tell me that this weekend, you know, she, she she's, uh, you know, a lawyer. And she was driving around in, in Santa Monica. And she got um, pulled over. I guess she had, you know, stopped in a bike lane and for a few seconds to drop somebody off. And, and the officer was, she said, incredibly condescending towards her and saying things like, well, uh, about like putting on a license plate, like, well, women should know how to do that. Like things that are Mm. clearly reflective of his personal ego and history and issues and not at all about the situation and and, and before her. And, And she was shocked because, you know, she's, she's white. She's, you know, a lawyer driving a, you know, nice car in, you know, in the liberal city of Santa Monica. And if she was treating, treated that way, she was, you know, can't even imagine how people under different circumstances are treated. So it's like top to bottom, no matter where uh, the police are serving high crime, low crime, high economic, socioeconomic, low, there there needs to be uh, some work done. Definitely. Definitely, definitely. definitely. All right. And so finally, we are um, going to talk about the NFL Rookie Symposium last year, where Pro Football Hall of Famer, uh, former NFL receiver Chris Carter, told attendees of the symposium to get a fall guy in case they ever got into legal trouble. The funny part or funnier part about this is he was standing next to Warren Sapp, who is currently facing domestic violence charges um, uh, from uh, incidents stemming from his ex-girlfriend and hookers, different incidents. Um, But he Chris Carter said that he lets his homeboys know y'all want to keep rolling like this then i need you to know who's going to be the fall and then i need to know who's going to be the fall guy who's going to be driving he said y'all not going uh to i'm this is uh, very difficult for me to, to to quote but paraphrasing that if people want to be in the crew and enjoy the fruits of the money and attention and fame that comes from hanging out with an NFL player, that they were going to have to do their part to keep the uh, football player out of jail, out of the limelight for misbehavior or criminal activity. And he recently apologized now that this came to light. Uh, but there's part of me that thinks he wasn't entirely off base. <laughs> he 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 now apologized over Twitter for giving incredibly bad advice, but I think the spirit of his advice was good. I think that uh, it was it wasn't great that it was videotaped. Uh, I don't know if he knew it was going to be videotaped and then posted on the NFL's mm-hmm. website for the public to see. Perhaps he thought that this was in private, but the spirit of. Listen, don't let people just be leeches. Everybody around you has got to do their part to try and keep you, the moneymaker, safe. And, and and perhaps the emphasis should have been on 
you know, you're, if, if you're going to do things that are illegal, make sure you're on the periphery of it. Don't be the one arranging the drug deals to go down. Don't be the one behind the wheel. Don't, you know, just, um, be basically on the periphery so that somebody else takes the responsibility. Now, if I was one-on-one with a client, I might give them that, that kind of advice, but not to go and break the law, but just to be, um, realistic. Because I think when, 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 if we were to just tell these players, you know, keep your head in the game, ignore the women, ignore the drugs, ignore the partying, ignore the scene, you know, keep your nose clean, that that's kind of like how sex educators have been talking about abstinence only, and look where that that has gotten us. Mm -hmm. It has gotten us nowhere good and fast. Mm -hmm. And so I think he was speaking to the reality uh, of life and and the life that these players sometimes choose to live. Am I crazy way off base here? Or do you think that part of what he recommended is sound legal advice? (laughs) I wouldn't say sound legal advice, but I would say that um, I think that what the league and probably why they made him apologize is just they want their, especially with all the heat the NFL has been under within the last year or two, is kind of, I think, just teaching the new players to come in to basically just do the right thing kind of thing. I think if he could have tweaked his speech to just say, if you're going to drink, have a driver. Yes. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to do certain things, take certain precautions, that type of thing would have been a better approach to kind of what he was trying to say. But I don't think a fall guy was like the exact, the best Probably not the best phrase. You're right. I don't think he had bad intentions in doing it. Right. I I don't either. I think he was really trying to look out for the guys and and in, in some weird way, yeah, giving some kind of advice that they probably yeah. should listen like to. Like the old uncle who gives random advice. You don't yeah, know if but he, the best, you know, he knows but. from experience, <laughs> and so that's why he's telling you. So we want to hear from you. What do you think? Was this actually sound advice? Um, let us know. Comment. Tweet me at Chelsea Galicia. I want to thank Portia as this wraps up our uh, episode for today. Thank you for so much for being here and providing your perspective. Please check out the rest of the shows on Black Hollywood Live's roster and come back and join us next week. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us. Info at BlackHollywoodLive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio. Instagram me at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.